Father, you are worthy to be praised. To be praised. And were we to catch a glimpse of your glory, we would be in awe. God, we know that you are that God, high and exalted. So now we want to come before you and worship you by listening to you, by humbling ourselves before your word. So would you please fill us with the Holy Spirit and Father, fill me as I speak. Help us to learn what you want us to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been studying the book of 1 Samuel here over the last couple months, chapters 1 through 17. We've been looking at stories of faith and lack of faith. And we've been trying to learn from the Israelites and the Philistines and Samuel and Eli and Hannah, trying to figure out what it means to truly have faith in and to honor God. Now, have you been reading those chapters on your own? We're almost at the end of our series now, just a couple weeks left. But there's still time for you to be reading and rereading those sections of Scripture. But I want you to put yourself in Israel's shoes now. I want you to try to feel what it would have been like to live in a place where oftentimes your neighboring countries would be fighting against you. That every once in a while they would just muster their armies together for war and they would come and attack you. And you might fight them off one time and you might lose the next time. And, and this, is your, this has been your nation's history for the last 400 years. Knowing that, it kind of puts some context to what we're going to talk about today, where the, the people of Israel asked for a king. But we can understand to some degree what they were saying. They're, they're looking at their country and they're saying, hey, we're kind of defenseless here. We, we don't have the right structure in place to be able to resist the next attack that comes. All the other nations around us have a king who leads them into those things. It would be kind of nice if we had something like that. And you can imagine, you know, on their talk radio and their, their news shows, they, uh, people were saying, we should get a king like all the other nations have. And you can maybe start to hear the groundswell of support in the community for it. And I want you to think, you know, what would have been your response? And, and the reason that we're looking at this today is because it raises a key question for them, but also for us. And the question is this, who is our king? In today's passage, the people of Israel were wondering how they should replace Samuel as their leader. Samuel had led them well for many years. He started as a young boy, and in our passage today it says that he was getting old. And he had served in the, the role of judge over Israel. And the people noticed that Samuel was getting old, and they said, well, how do, how do we fill his position? And that's when the people started thinking, oh, we should get one of those kings, not just a judge, but a king to rule over us. What I want to do today is, is I want us to learn from their mistakes because ultimately they weren't just picking a human leader. Their actions showed where their hearts were at toward God. So what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through parts of chapter 8 and parts of chapter 12 today in 1 Samuel. And then after that we're going to apply the message to our lives. So starting in chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. 
Like I said, Samuel, who had been leading Israel spiritually for many years, he was getting old. And because of that, he appointed his sons to succeed him as judges over Israel. It looks like he was following the pattern set forth in Deuteronomy 16, where God said, appoint judges in your land. However, there was a big problem. Samuel's sons didn't walk in his ways. It says in verse 3 that they turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Two of those three things that they had done wrong were specifically mentioned in Deuteronomy excuse me, Deuteronomy 16 is things that the judges were not supposed to do. Now the people of Israel saw this and they knew that there was a problem. So they came to Samuel and said in verse 5, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. The first part of what they said was actually pretty good. They they looked at Samuel's sons and they said, Hey, those, those people shouldn't be leading us. The problem is, and this is all too often the problem that we're seeing in 1 Samuel, is that they came up with their own idea to fix it. It started by, by them recognizing something that shouldn't have been, and they were right to recognize that, but then they just simply came up with their own idea. They asked for a king. And notice how they asked for the king. They said, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. The Israelites wanted to become like the nations around them. But that wasn't God's plan for that nation. God's plan was to make them into a different people, a people belonging to him. The people of Israel were supposed to honor God and submit to his ways. That's why I picked out chapter 2, verse 30, as the key verse so far in 1 Samuel, where God says, Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. It's as if God is saying to these people, won't you honor me in this decision that you're making and I'll take care of you. But unfortunately, the people of Israel saw this problem and they went their own way. They came up with their own solution to ask for a king. They had lots of reasons. Like I was mentioning before, they wanted a a centralized military and one person to make the decisions to send them into battle. There were lots of things that they saw going wrong in their nation. So they came up with a plan. but notice what's missing there. And I've said it already. They didn't stop and take the time to seek God and say, God, what would you have us do? They should have asked God what he wanted. Instead, they demanded a king. Well, what did Samuel and God think about all this? Let's read verses 6 through 9. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And there's a good example right there. Samuel just went right to the Lord. Verse 7, And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. So this solution was displeasing to Samuel and it dishonored the Lord. Now what was it that was so bad about their request for a king? I I struggle with that this question this week. It's a difficult question because it's interesting to note that earlier in the Bible, back in Deuteronomy 17, God had already told the Israelites some 400 years earlier what they were supposed to do to install a new king. So the question in my mind, well, was it wrong for them to ask for a king? Well, God had already told them how they should set up their king and we know 
from what we know now, looking back in, in 2013, we know that God was pleased to send Jesus as king. And who did he was of the line of King David. So it looked like God all along had a plan for there to be a king over Israel. So something else must be going on here. And, and, and here's the solution that I came to. The problem wasn't so much what the people of Israel were asking for. The problem was what they were rejecting. And, and the problem wasn't so much what they asked for as how they were asking for it. A little illustration here. Those of you who have kids, you'll know exactly what I mean about this. But let's say that you parents have cooked a meal for your children. And as part of that meal, you have cooked a delicious dessert that you know that your kids will like at the end of it. And the rule is you've got to eat your supper first and then you get the dessert. Well, let's say that one of your kids has about two bites of his supper left and he starts whining and complaining for the dessert. It's such a bummer, isn't it? Because it was your desire all along to give him the dessert and all he needed to do was just to take those last two couple of bites and then ask kindly and wait patiently. But it kind of ruins it as parents when, when you... So you kids just know that. That sometimes we want to give you good things and you just have to be patient and wait a little bit for it. I think that's a problem that we see here in 1 Samuel 8. Is that this wasn't the timing. This wasn't the way that God wanted to bring about a king for Israel. Earlier in Israel's history, there was a guy who got this right, Gideon, who was a judge also over Israel. The, the people asked him to rule over them and he said, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So it takes a little bit of looking at the broader context here, but what we see is the problem in Israel in chapter 8 was a rejecting of God. In chapter 12, verse 12, Samuel rebukes the people for asking for a king because he said, The Lord your God was your king. People of Israel looked at their circumstances. They, they saw something that wasn't right. They came up with their own plan and they asked for a king. And you know what's ironic or even sad about all of this? Everything that Israel wanted was something that God had already promised to give them. They wanted to be safe from the people who were attacking them. They wanted to be led spiritually. Those are things that were promised already, set in stone in God's word, that he would give to them if they would humbly follow him according to his ways. So the problem in chapter 8 isn't simply the request for a king. The problem is a heart issue. That's why in verse 7 the Lord said, they have rejected me as their king. So it says in Hosea 13 that God gave them a king in his anger. How, would God, how should God respond to all of this? The people had done something that they shouldn't have done. They whined, they complained, they demanded a king. How should God respond? Well, it's interesting to see that how God responded was he gave the people what they asked for. He let them have their king. But then he told Samuel to warn them about all that the king would do to them. And let's read that warning in verses 10 through 17. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. <coughs> I don't have much to say about these verses other than to just simply point out that the king was going to take their children, both sons and daughters. He was also going to take their possessions. And it ended up by saying, you yourselves will become his slaves. Sounds like a pretty strong warning to me. But actually the warning gets even worse than that. Because look at verse 18. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. Not only did God warn the people about what the king would do to them, he also warned them that, hey, if you choose that path, and you don't like what the king does to you, and you cry out to me, I'm not going to answer you. Basically, God gave the people what they wanted, for better or worse. And let that stand as a reminder to us. God doesn't force us to follow his ways, right? We all know that. Every one of us in here, we know that we have the capacity to either follow God or not to follow him. God allows us that freedom. But God certainly doesn't promise to bless us if we go our own ways. And that's what God is saying here. And he even told the people that he wouldn't answer their cries for help in those times. Now, does that seem harsh? Does that seem like God's being unfair to them? Uh, Personally, I don't think so. And actually, what I would say is that at least four other times in the Bible, we get the same idea that if people go their own way, that God is under no obligation to rescue them from their distress. God doesn't have to hear their prayers if they've chosen their own path. Now, I think there is one prayer that God will hear in those times, At any time, it's the prayer of repentance. The prayer of us saying to God, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? I think God will answer that prayer. But even then, God may not take the consequence of our sin away. Even if God does forgive and take the the payment of our sin and apply it to Jesus, even then, we may still have the consequence of our sin to deal with and God may not take that away. In his wisdom, he might choose to let us linger in that. Okay. So, how will the people respond after hearing these warnings? After hearing all this stuff that the king will do and hearing that God won't even rescue them? Let's look at their response in verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. Again, what a wonderful example from Samuel, just taking it right to the Lord. Verse 22, The Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, Everyone go back to his town. The people stiffened their necks. They wouldn't listen, and they just simply said no. You see, the biggest threat in Israel at this time. It wasn't the Philistines. It wasn't the Ammonites. The biggest threat to Israel was the spiritual condition of their hearts. God would have protected them. He would have led them into blessing if they would have submitted to him and honored him. But instead the people chose their own ways and they demanded a king. Now how how do you think God 
should respond to all this? Should it be judgment? Get out that divine laser beam and just blow him up? Or should he just look the other way and say, well, okay, it was kind of a sin, but not that bad of a one, and I'll just, I'll just forget about it. How should God respond when we make bad decisions? When we have thumbed our nose at God, when we have chosen our own ways instead of his, how should God respond? Well, fortunately, God often responds with grace. Let me give you an illustration of grace. Um, about a year and a half ago, Christine and I decided that we wanted to buy a new mattress. It was time. The old one had served its purpose and uh, was ready to go to Josiah's room, actually. So it'll be fine for him, but for us uh, adults, it, we kind of needed a new one. So we went into the mattress store, and you know how it goes. You've got soft, medium, and firm. And I'm a firm guy. I just, and I'm kind of a picky sleeper. That's I just, I'm not proud of that fact. It's just the truth. I just kind of have to have things the right way for me. And I know that I'm a firm guy. And uh, Christine, she could sleep. She, we could get a piece of plywood and a pillow for her, and she'd fall asleep. <laughs> so, um, so she kind of said, you know, I'll, I'll kind of let you pick it. And, but I knew that she would prefer a medium mattress to a firm. So we were laying down in the soft. I'm like, no way. Nope, can't do that one. Lay down in the medium. Oh, that's kind of comfortable. So laid down on the firm, like, yeah, that's kind of comfortable too, although it's pretty firm. And then I went back on the medium and I thought, you know what, this medium seems like it might be all right. So we bought the medium, and as we were buying it, they said, do you want to buy the policy that if you don't like the mattress, you can return it within 30 days? I'm like, nah, I tested it out, I'll I'll just buy it. So uh, we bought the mattress, brought it home, and uh, went to bed that first night. And I I laid down on the mattress, and my first thought was, oh yeah, this is kind kind of nice, I kind of like this soft mattress. And then as I laid there for a little while longer, I thought, well, actually, no, not really. It's kind of, kind of uncomfortable. And, and Christine is fast asleep, you know. <laughs> but I, the more I'm laying there awake, the more I'm thinking, I don't like this mattress. And, and then the more I'm thinking about it, like, actually, it's not that I just don't like this mattress. It's that I don't even know if I can fall asleep on it. And I'm starting to think, I didn't buy the return policy. Oh. And I'm thinking, what in the world have I done? And, and finally, I woke Christine up and I said, I don't like this mattress at all. We, we have to not sleep on this mattress tonight, call the mattress people in the morning and beg them to give us a different one. So that's what we did. I kicked her out of the bed. I think she went to the couch and I went to a different bed somewhere and, uh, and uh, called at 8 o'clock in the morning. I went on the internet. When do they open? 8 o'clock. I called them at 8 o'clock. And I said, I, I'm an idiot. Um, I bought this mattress, and we, just, we didn't sleep on it last night, but we don't like it. We didn't buy the return policy. Can we return it? Now, the lady who sold me the mattress, she could have said, sorry, you didn't buy the return policy. You don't get the new mattress. But in her grace, she said, okay, bring, bring the mattress in, and, uh, and we'll give you the new one, but we will make you buy the return policy. And I said, fine, fine. I, I should have done that in the first place. So we got the firm mattress, and... and Yes, rest assured, I have been sleeping fine on that firm mattress for the last year and a half. But, but I like that as an example of grace. She didn't have to respond that way. It was my fault. I was the one who made the bad choices. She responded in grace. And that's the picture that we're going to see of God as we move ahead to chapter 12. So we're skipping over chapters 9 through 11, not because they're not good, just because... We don't have time to get to all of this before Easter when we're going to be moving on to a new series. But in chapter 9 through 11, we'll see that God raised up Saul. To, that he said to Samuel, anoint Saul as king. 
and Saul actually led Israel in a successful military battle. But then at the end of Samuel's career as judge, he addressed the people of Israel, and he just wanted to kind of tell them one more time what they had done, but then also to tell them how God was going to respond to them in it. And what we see again is an amazing offer of grace. And I want to show you verses 14 and 15. Um, and, and keep in mind, it, it even says so in chapter 12, that they had rejected God as their king. Verses 14 and 15 say, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. And then verses 22 to 25. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, Samuel says, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. I love how it's stated in verse 22, the Lord will not reject his people. The people have rejected the Lord. But the Lord will not reject his people. Instead, God gave the people another chance to follow them. And he laid out the terms for them. In, in verses 14 and 15, it says they were to fear the Lord and serve him and obey him and not rebel. And not just the people, but the king as well. And if so, it would go well for them. It's very similar in verse 24. They were to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. They were also to stop and to consider what good things the Lord had done for them. But there was a warning too. In verse 25 it says, Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. You see, God responded in grace. He could have responded in judgment. He could have wiped him out. But he loves his people and wants what's best for them. I want you to think about a sin that you have committed. Maybe, maybe think about one of the bigger sins that you have committed. Not that I want you to, I don't want to rub your nose in it or anything like that. I just want you to think for a moment about one of the bigger sins that you've committed in your life. And then think about what could have happened had the worst case scenario followed after it if God would have brought about the full wrath of his judgment on you. Or if that sin would have become found out and everybody would have known about it, and you had to live in the consequences the rest of your life. Think about how bad it could have been because of the bad choices that you made. But I think what we all would be able to say right now is that that's not the way that God has responded. That yes, maybe we have had to live in, a, in a, maybe a significant amount of consequence for it, but yet God's offer of grace still stands for us that if we fear him and serve him and obey him, that, that one little word, the NIV translated in verse 14, good. If you do all this, good. That's, that's how God wants us to live, to know that, yeah, our sin, it matters, but God is willing to forgive and to lead us into what's right. And that's where I was thinking about Psalm 103 again. And I, I want to read for you verses 8 through 13. I read part of it at communion. But I want to read it again and just think about the amazing character of the Lord as he deals with us in our sin. And you might want to flip there in your Bibles to Psalm 103. I'm going to read verses 8 through 13. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse. 
nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The Israelites had acted wickedly, but God, because of who he is, gave them a second chance. The theologian Bill Arnold said, They have sinned, but God has incorporated their failure into his own plans. He is capable of overcoming their failure. We all too often have sinned against God, yet he loves to show grace. But even that grace comes with conditions. I want you to notice a key word in chapter 12. It's a small little word, if. Four times in verses 14 through 15, the NIV has the word if in there. And again in verse 25, if. God shows grace to us sinners, but he also wants us to follow his ways. And he says, yes, you've sinned, but I want you to come back to me. And if you will follow me, good. So how should we respond to this God of grace? We should follow him. And that means that we humble ourselves. We don't follow our ways. We follow his ways. And that, that's a theme from First Samuel so far. We don't follow our ways. We honor him and follow his ways. So my big idea for today is that it takes a humble heart to follow God rightly. And, and where I get that from is the fact that first the Israelites hardened their hearts and they rejected God as their king. But then God said, I'm willing to forgive and to let you come back to me if you will follow me. If you reject your own ways and in humility follow my ways, then I will let you come back. It takes a humble heart to follow God rightly. So how does this story of Israel asking for a king apply to us? That's where we want to go now. We, we've studied the passage and now we ask that question like any good Bible interpreter should do, what does this mean for me? First we ask, what does it mean? And then we ask, what does it mean for me? Well, this passage raises the question for us about who our king is. And I think that that is perhaps the most crucial question in our lives. Israel had a choice. They could continue to recognize God as their king, or they could demand their own way and demand a king. And similarly for us, we need to make that decision about who our king is. And really, there's only two choices. It's either God or ourselves. And to me, the key verse that we looked at today is chapter 8, verse 7, where God said, they have rejected me as their king. That, that's the negative pattern. And, and Jesus brought clarity to this issue as well in the New Testament. In, in John 3.36, and actually... Uh, we're not sure if this is a quote from Jesus or if this is John adding his own commentary to what Jesus said, but either way, it's in Scripture now, and it's, it's from God. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. There are only two options, believe or reject. That's our lives in a nutshell. We either believe or reject. Now, reject is a powerful word, it's to look God in the eyes and say, nope, I will not follow you. Believe, then, is also a powerful word. And, and, and I hope you know this. 
I, I hope it's been said to you many times by many different people, but that word believe is a lot stronger than we might think it is. It's not just saying, oh, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. The, the word believe is a, a word for trust, a word for faith. It's a word for giving our hearts and our lives over to God. So really we have only two responses, and they're both dramatic responses to Jesus Christ. One is to believe in him and to give our lives and our hearts to him. The other is to reject him. And really, there's no middle ground. It's one or the other. Either we follow him or we don't. And that's the decision that we have to make. And if we choose to believe in Jesus and to receive him as our king and as our Lord, that means that he owns us. That means that we no longer have control over our our lives. That we've actually given that up to him. And that we humbly seek what he wants, not just what we want. So where do you stand with this? Who's calling the shots in your life? Do you make the decisions that you want to make based simply on what you want? Or do you submit to God and say, God, what do you want for me? And if you're not happy with where you're at right now, what should you do? Well, praise the Lord, there's good news. There's grace. If you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, oh, I've taken over too much control of my own life, there is good news. The God of grace wants you back. He wants you to walk rightly with him. He wants you to understand that the reason that Jesus died for our sins is so that we can be set free from them and to walk in newness of life. So whether you're straying from God or whether you're not even sure that you've ever placed your faith in God at all, the God of grace wants you to be with him, to live in a right relationship with him. Or what if things are going well for you in your relationship with God? If you're saying, yeah, you know, it actually feels like I'm in a pretty good spot now of following God. What should you do? Well, one example, or one suggestion would be what it says in verse 24 of chapter 12. Consider what great things he has done for you. If you're in a good spot spiritually, I urge you to take time and thank God for the great things that he has done for you. Thankfulness is good for our souls. It reminds us that God is king and we're not. That the good things that we're experiencing in our lives come from him and not from us. And then also I would say that moving forward we should remind ourselves to continually submit to God. For those of you that have been walking with the Lord for many years now, I want you to remember that coming to Christ isn't just simply a matter of what we did 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Coming to Christ means that we give our lives to Him to follow Him as Lord and that every day of the rest of our lives should bear proof, should bear witness to the fact that Jesus is our Lord. So if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, the question I would have for you is, are you seeing that daily fruit that comes from continual submission to Jesus Christ as Lord? We should be seeing that. Why should we be able to see that? Is it because we're so good at following Him? No, it's because God is so good and because the Holy Spirit that He gives us is so powerful to produce good fruit in us that we should expect that if we're submitting to Him, we would see that fruit in our lives. That's why every morning, one of the first things that I do is pray the Lord's Prayer. And I like to emphasize that part where it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's my commitment to God at the beginning of the day 
that I say to him, God, it's going to be your way and not my way. At least that's what I want to say. Now, truth be told, there are some days where it doesn't happen that way. Or at least it doesn't happen as much as it should happen. But for us who have been walking with the Lord, that's our commitment. That every day, in a sense, we would renew that vow to say that Jesus Christ is still the king of my life. And I'm not. So are there any decisions that you're making right now that you're tempted to make according to what you want? We need to submit everything to Christ because he's our king. God will allow us to live a self-directed life. That's one of the things that we see from chapter 8. God allows the Israelites to make their own decision. And in our passage today, Samuel warned the people what would happen if they chose their own ways instead of God's ways. And I want to give you the same warning today. Don't do it. God will let you. He will let you make a mess of things. He doesn't force us to follow him. But again, he certainly doesn't promise to bless us if we walk in our own ways. So we need to seek God, to humble ourselves before him and seek to honor him. It takes a humble heart to follow God rightly. And then just real quick in closing. It looks like the people of Israel desired to become like the nations around them. That's what they asked for. Give us a king like all the other nations have. Well, my heart for you and for me is that we wouldn't become like the world around us, but that we would become like Christ. So which one is it for you? Who is your king? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are our king. And we come before you right now and we recognize, we confess that we were not created to be in control of our own lives. You are our king. So God, we come humbly before you right now, whether for the first time or the one millionth time, we just want to come before you again and say, you are our king. And we want to follow you. Now, God, also we know that on one hand it's so easy to to simply say that. But I pray that it would be the truth of our lives that we submit to you, that we far from reject you as king, but we believe in you, put our trust in you, and live every day of our lives, every moment of our lives, according to the fact of the truth that you are king. May we honor you. May we walk humbly before you with right hearts. May we follow you, King Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.